Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Brand Design Masters podcast. I'm really super excited about this episode today because I'm joined by Mauro Percini. And Mauro is the Senior Vice President and Chief Creative Officer at PepsiCo. And in the last 10 years, he and his team have won more than 1,800 Design and Innovation Awards. And in 2018, PepsiCo was recognized by Fortune in its Business by Design list. He was previously 3M's Chief Design Officer, and over the years, Morrow's been the recipient of a ton of awards, among them Fast Company's 50 Most Influential Designers in America, Fortune's 40 Under 40, and Ad Age's list of the 50 of the world's most influential creative personalities. Now, in his role at PepsiCo, Morrow built design and innovation as a core competency inside the company for the first time in its 100-plus year history. And I personally had the honor of being brought in by Morrow to serve as the vice president of Global Snacks at PepsiCo in the early days of building that groundbreaking initiative of building up design within PepsiCo. And I remember the experience of working with Morrow as one of the most formative and inspiring and pleasurable experiences in my career. So when I was interviewing with him for this role at PepsiCo, I totally came under Mauro Porcini's spell. And Mauro has a passion and love for design and innovation like no one I have ever met in the industry. And I know that you're going to totally love listening to this interview as much as I did having it with Mauro. So come listen to the interview with Mauro and I hope you really enjoy it. I'm super excited to talk to Mauro today because he's just published his first book, which is called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in love with people, which is available on Amazon. And I will drop the link in the description of this podcast so you can check that out. So let's just jump right into it, Mauro. Tell us very quickly about how you came up in design, because a lot of my audience are creative professionals, and I'm sure their first question on their mind is like, how do you become a chief design officer of a major corporation? So what are the cliff notes of that journey? Well, first of all, Philip, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today and with everybody listening to us and eventually watching some of the clips. How do you become a chief design officer? First of all, starting your professional journey without the goal of becoming the chief design officer or something, but following what you love. That's, you know, sounds like very good to say, and it's beautiful to say in a podcast or an interview, but it's really, really, really what happened to me. The more I read, the more I read stories of people that have been doing something interesting in life. And the more I realize that actually this is a common trait of many people that achieve something, you know, in their journey, their professional journey. The starting point is to do what you love, to do with full passion. And when you do that, by consequence, you're going to go the extra mile. You're going to put extra effort in what you're doing. You're going to study to get better every day what you're doing, you're going to have a drive that you don't have if you don't love what you do every day. The second thing is somehow to think about where you want to go. But, you know, what, what is your dream? What is your vision? What is your plan? But not, not in terms of fame and wealth and positions, more in terms of what you can do to generate value for yourself and for society through what you're good at, what you love. So in the case of design, you know, what can I do as a designer 
to create value for people, for society, therefore for the companies I work for, thinking that the value for you is just a consequence of all these things, is a major shift from people thinking, well, I'm going to create value for me first, meaning I need the next job, the next position, and I'm going to see everything else as a lever for that. It's a really different kind of approach. And so, uh, you know, in my personal journey, I started as, as an industrial designer. And then when I, I did my thesis in wearable technologies, and through that, I, I joined Philips Design, working in wearable technologies in Philips. So imagining the future of society 20 years in advance and thinking about how we're going to interact with technologies, wearing them to increase our comfort, connectivity, safety, and style. That was what I did back then for about one year. And then I created my own, I left, I created my own agency, working on the world of digital and try on one side, working on what you expect from the world of digital, what you were expecting back then, the identity of brands and companies. And mostly in our case was the identity of big Italian celebrities working in music, in TV. But then in parallel, what we were doing was trying to figure out I want to create something that nobody ever did before in the world. We were working, one of the core projects was working on what later on got called cryptocurrency, for instance, mm. and a variety of other things. But it was really innovation applied to the world of digital. But it was too early. So internet crashed and the, the internet bubble burst and we closed the agency and I bumped into 3M, the tech company from Minnesota. I joined the company to work as a design coordinator in the European business in the consumer category of the company, one of the six categories of the company. And the focus was, was on industrial design. 10 years later, I left the company and I was the chief design officer of the company, multiple design centers all around the world, from Japan to China, to the US, to Italy, Brazil, and they joined Pepsi. It was 10 years ago. The reason why I mention all these steps in the journey is that every step gave me something different that enabled me later on to become the chief design officer of these corporations. Essentially, at the beginning, it was, I was an industrial designer. I, I learned how to think about the future, envision the future, and go back to the present and create something to prepare for the future. When I was there, I learned the world of graphic design and typography because we were a small team in Philips and everybody was doing multiple things. So I had to do also things that were not ready for that I didn't study at school and I learned that world. Then I jumped in a completely different reality. It was the world of digital and I had to learn coding, creating internet sites and use all the softwares in the world. But when I was there, I got intrigued with what you could do in the world of digital beyond pure design, literally entrepreneurship in the world of digital. Then I joined 3M again, once again, as industrial designer, but this time working on pure technology in a variety of different industries, industries different from one another, from aerospace to healthcare to the consumer products, office, and, and so on and so forth. And I realized very quickly that to do my job in the proper way, industrial design was not enough. I needed to work on packaging, on communication, on digital, on experience, but nobody was asking me to do that. And so I learned to do it. I prototype, you know, things. I, I started to work in fields that were not 
that didn't belong to my job description. And I did that by partnering with business leaders that would let me do things like this. And so I, I started to learn more and more and more and have a point of view on different disciplines of design. So long story short, what happened is that in all these years, I learned somehow to manage, eventually to master in some of the cases, all the different dimensions of design, in connection, so graphic design, industrial design, digital experience, fashion, and connect them all with the business goal, the business goal of the of these companies I was working for. And in all of these, I learned to build capabilities to enable all you know all of, to enable this vision, to enable all of this to happen. So hiring people, hiring the right people, understanding the power of the those people, empowering them to do what they need, you know, what they needed to do without constraining them without stopping them from expressing themselves, understanding literally that to, to succeed, to arrive to the dream, I needed to rely on all of them and I needed to find the best of the best of the best people out there. And so this is what a chief design officer does. You need to manage all the dimensions of design, understand the world of business and understand people. These are the key ingredients and then you mix them together to build value for the company you work for or for your own company. One of the things you talk about in the book is unicorn designers. And there's 24 skills of these people that are make them unicorns, right? It's, it's impossible, as you say, to find people who have everything. But it sounds like to an extent, as you were coming up, you you know were a master of product design and design. But as you became more adept at navigating these large corporations, you were learning the various disciplines, production, manufacturing, distribution, all of those things, and learning how to coordinate them together around a common goal. So to a certain extent, that's what I saw you in the very first days of PepsiCo do, was that you took a corporation which was not design-centric, had always farmed out design to agencies, and you brought it in-house and built it as a competency inside of PepsiCo. Is that what you did at 3M to an extent? Were they a design-centric organization, or did you do somewhat the same thing? I, it's exactly the same playbook. The only difference is that in 3M, first of all, I joined, there was 27, so I had less experience. Second, I joined in 2002, and there was less awareness about the value of design in mm. the world of business outside of industries where design was the core competitive advantage, like consumer electronics, automotive, fashion, and so on and so forth. And therefore, Somehow, because of this kind of situation, I needed to learn by doing. And, and so it took 10 years to realize certain things. And then when I joined PepsiCo, I had this playbook ready. So I knew exactly what to do. Indeed, it was part of my conversation with the CEO back then, Indra Nui, the CEO of PepsiCo. In the interview I, I, I had with her when I joined the company, we didn't talk about the projects that they did in 3M, the achievements that they had in the company and in the previous companies. We talked about, mostly about, how to design culture. And because Indra knew perfectly that to introduce something new, and she was introducing multiple different things that were new to the company, you needed to understand not just how to master the new discipline, the new approach, but also how to somehow design the culture around you to embrace that, that new discipline, the new approach, the new methodology, the new capability. She was essentially back then 
introducing the idea of performance repurpose, the idea of building a nutrition business, introducing the idea of these global organizations and, and managing the tension between global and local. So she knew perfectly how culture was important. And when I started to talk about culture and how to design culture and what happened in 3M and how culture was important to drive the creation of the design capability, I think that's where we click. And, and I talked with her about five different phases that I went through. The new culture went through in 3M that are the same phases that then became the playbook for PepsiCo. It could be applied to any kind of other company. The first one is what I call denial is when the company doesn't realize that they need something different and they're like, okay, we don't need design. We've been successful for more than 100 years without design. Why design? But sooner or later, somebody realized that you need a new culture. It needs to be either the CEO or somebody at the top of the company because it needs to be somebody that can empower the change, that has the resources and the credibility to drive the change. When this person arrives, hire somebody to ignite that change. Sometimes you can try to hire people from outside to hire the change to consultant and everything, but usually that doesn't work. You need people in-house to drive mm. the culture change. And so in the case of 3M, they hired this kid out of Italy. They left him there in Italy, not, you know, they didn't move me to the United States at first. And it was a sort of prototype, an experiment in the world of design thinking, you know, this is the experiment you do to validate an idea. If the experiment was not going in the right direction, the company would be like, would have been like, whatever, you know, nobody will realize. It's just somebody there in the periphery of the American empire playing with design. So it was a safe experiment and it made sense because it was 20 years ago. Again, design was not yet so established in, in the world of business as it is today. And, and so here I am, I take my suitcase and I travel to Minnesota to meet all these business leaders and R&D leaders and I have all these meetings and they all go really, really well. And I, I, I remember going to the office of my executive sponsor, the EVP of the consumer business of 3M, uh, Dr. Monozare, and telling more. It's fantastic. You know, everybody's embracing this idea of design. It's going to be so much easier than what we're thinking to drive design in the organization. There was always a very serious person that day was more serious than ever, looked at me and told me, everybody is lying to you. <laughs> but no, more. <laughs> I was there. It's impossible. You know, I, I saw them, you know, I have a very high EQ and emotional intelligence. You were not there. And more goes on. I'm telling you that everybody was lying to you. And then again, he goes on with an example, with a metaphor to explain what he was talking about. He told me, Imagine you are in an art gallery and you see a beautiful painting in front of you that you really, really love and you have your pockets full of money. What do you do? You buy the painting. Well, Mauro, you and Design are one of the paintings in the 3M art gallery. And these people that you met, they have the pockets full of money because I placed those money there. It's the budget that I gave them. And nobody's buying you and Design. They're all buying other paintings. They're buying the next HR project, the investment in a plant, you know, something else, but not design. They're not investing in you. There was a big aha moment. It changed completely my life because I realized, first of all, that it was right. And, and I realized why people were behaving like this. They were behaving like this either because they didn't want to disappoint this kid full of hope and visions and everything. They wanted to be nice to me, not kind, nice. 
And, or maybe they were afraid of the executive sponsor behind me. They didn't want to annoy Monozari. Or maybe they were sending me weak signals of the fact they were not really buying into my ideas. But I was not reading that because as human beings, we love to think they were loved. And often we are blind to the rejection. Long story short, I realized that so many times we pitch something and people are not with us and we don't realize and we are not aware of it. So after that, I developed a technique to avoid that kind of blind spot. Every time I pitch something to somebody, I ask them money, a commitment. Okay, you believe in this? Give me people. Give me the resources to start a project. Or at least if you can't, if I know that they really cannot because they don't have those resources, I ask for a commitment. It's what I call a sacrifice. You need to be in that with me in a visible way. And that changed everything because essentially when you do that, usually nine people out of 10 will drop off. Mm. They will be like, oh, yeah, I really believe in what you're saying, but right now is not the right moment. Let's do it in two months, in three months. And then they disappear. So to do that is powerful because two things happen. One, you give yourself the possibility to ask them why they don't want to be with you, to answer any question that they may have. And maybe, maybe you will, you will be able to convert some more people. But mostly, even if you don't, what is important in that moment is to find the one person out of 10 they want to be with you. I call them the co-conspirators. So in this phase, I call the second phase, the phase of hidden rejection. When you are rejected, don't realize. The third phase is what I call the occasional leap of faith. Is when you do find those co-conspirators, they take a leap of faith on you or you, this new capability. By the way, it could be design, could be anything else. And they start to work with you to build proof points. It's important, you know, when I joined PepsiCo, I started to map all the projects that were somehow low-hanging fruits. Like you may remember the redesign of Pepsi Worldwide, the Spire machine. There were certain things that were low-hanging fruit. Like, okay, there is a way to show value quickly in these projects. But then I, I started to map also the business leaders that were the potential co-conspirators. Because if I had a project where I could show design value quickly, but they didn't have a business leader that was understanding that approach and empowering me to do things and, you know, playing with us in the right way. I was just going to waste time. In the meantime, if I had Draco conspirators, but they didn't have the right projects, I was going to waste time anyway, because we didn't have the right ability to show impact very quickly. So long story short, in that phase, you'll be proof points. And those are so important because they give you that credibility I'm talking about. And you need to deliver them fast. And that's why you remember we had a snacks organization, a beverage organization, a nutrition organization. You were focused on snacks. It was not that important to succeed everywhere. It was important that we could build at least some proof points in some of the organizations because those proof points actually would have been so powerful going back to the other organization and tell them, you see, we did it there. We're not doing it with you. Why? Or the other regions of the world, you know, we started with China and then all the regions came. Today we have 15 design centers around the world. So again, the point of the occasional leap of faith is you need to move fast. You need to create some proof point. That proof point needs to be visible. You don't need to do everything perfect and everywhere. Just do it here and there. What is going to happen then is that when people see those proof points, they will come to you and they will be like, wow, I want to do 
in my business what you did in that business. And I'm going to be like, okay. It's like cross-divisional jealousy develops. As soon as someone gets that eye of Indra and people are seeing how great and sexy that thing they're working on, they're like, oh, we got to do something great and sexy too, right? Yeah. And it could be, you said it's something, but you say something very important. It could be the eye of the CEO. Or it could be impact on the market, you know, so financial revenue. Or it could be a new connection that you build with a customer. It could be many different things. And that's why it's so important. This is one of the qualities of the unicorns to understand the person you're talking to and with the potential co-conspirator and understand what drives them, what is important to them. Because if you do, maybe for this person in the moment of their career, it's very, very important to get a lot of visibility with SEO because this person is thinking about the next job. So you understand that that's a level that you can offer because yes, you know, I, we're doing things that are very visible and the SEO is sponsoring me. Then I'm going to offer this to you on top of the fact that I'm generating value for your business. But maybe you have in front of you somebody that doesn't understand that design can generate value for their business. Mm. They don't believe that yet. But we believe that eventually can generate visibility with SEO. It's okay. In that phase, I'm going to leverage that. Give me that. I'm going to show you effects that I'm going to also generate value for you in the business. But all of this is connected to the ability of these design leaders to have empathy. Not just empathy for the people you design for. Empathy for the people around you. Your potential internal clients. I don't like to call them in the way, but you, so you understand what I'm talking about. The co-conspirators, your boss, your teams, you know, everybody surrounding you that is part of the vision and that dream of changing the organization for the better. So this is the, the third phase, the occasional leap of faith. And then once you start to have a critical mass of projects, you move to the fourth phase. That is what I call the quest for confidence is when the company is like, wow, yes, now it, this is not anymore the toy of the CEO or the, you know, the trend of the moment. This is something that actually is building value for the organization. So we need to scale it up. We need to move from startup mode to scale up mode. And this is where new challenges arrive because you need, first of all, capabilities to be able to build processes and tools and work at scale. But while you do that, you need to be really careful not to kill what made that team great at the beginning. The passion, the intuition, the love, the entrepreneurship. And so this is the challenge of the quest for confidence is how to balance processes and scale with passion and intuition and love. And to do that, once again, you need the right human beings that are able to create the right balance between the two dimensions. And that's why I call it quest for confidence. I could have called it the scale-up phase, but the quest for confidence connects to one specific struggle that you have in this phase, that while you scale up, the company starts to lose confidence that that thing can really work as scale. And often, in fact, many of these initiatives die in that phase. And instead, you need to build inner confidence in all the different leaders and individuals that those big risks you're starting to take by investing millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in the capability is going to generate a return that is worth. And then if you do that, at that point, you integrate the culture inside the organization and you move to the fifth phase, that what I call holistic awareness, when the new culture is totally inside the DNA of the company. So this has been literally a big chunk of my conversation with Indra when I interview, we talk about this. So going back to your first question about what does a CDO does? 
a chief design officer does. Well, you need to run projects, of course. You need to understand the business, of course. But if you are introducing something different, and usually you do, because even if you work in a design-driven company, all your projects will be innovative by definition. They, they have to be, else you're not doing your job. So there is always this component of disruption and innovation in everything you do. Well, as a CDO, you need to understand how to take everybody with you, how to design the culture. And by the way, the interesting thing is that you can use the tools of, the, of design thinking, empathy, strategy, and prototyping, even when you design culture. You understand the people in front of you, you understand the strategy of the company, and then you prototype solutions. Some will work, some won't work. You will learn from that, and you will create an organization that is better and better. This episode of the Brand Design Masters podcast is sponsored by Bring Your Own Laptop. BYOL.me is a top-tier Adobe application video training website featuring Daniel Scott. Daniel's a certified Adobe trainer and keynote speaker at the Adobe Max conference every year. At BYOL.me forward slash Philip, you can learn everything from the basics to advanced aspects of your favorite Adobe applications, all for one low monthly subscription fee. Visit BYOL.me forward slash Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P. Again, that's BYOL.me forward slash Philip. I just know you're going to be amazed at Bring Your Own Laptops courses. One of the things that I think that a lot of creatives who are working inside of corporations and agencies even struggle with is how to elevate the importance or the embracing of design within their organization. And one of the things you talk about in the book, which I saw you do when I came to PepsiCo at the very beginning, which was you utilize the idea of the shiny object and you create this vision. And in this case, the one I particularly remember was this very modernistic soda fountain. You were innovating the soda fountain. It was the iPhone beautiful icon of soda fountains. I mean, it was gorgeous. Talk about the use of the shiny object, because I think that's one of those things that creatives inside of companies can learn how to use to get eyeballs on what they're doing and kind of build that excitement and that passion, which can get you to those co-conspirators. So talk about that a little bit and how you do that. Yeah. And that's so I get that the shiny object is one of the superpowers of prototyping that I talk about in the book. So if design thinking is empathy, strategy, and prototyping, and prototyping is that idea of when you have an intuition, you immediately translate that in a post-it note, on a sketch on a piece of paper, on a rough prototype, a mock-up, all the way to when you arrive to something that is very visible, is beautiful, is exciting, is the shiny object. Well, there are multiple values very quickly. The first one is when you prototype, you align everybody around an idea. If I say knife right now, you know, you will, you visualize a, a knife. I will visualize a different knife and all the people listening to us right now will visualize more and more knives. But if I sketch a knife, I have a prototype of a knife. First of all, I align everybody around that idea. How many times we are in a meeting, we talk about something, we all think we're aligned, and then we get out of the meeting, everybody goes in different directions because we were not in reality. So the first power of prototyping is alignments of people, no matter where you are, in what position in the company, and in what geography you are. 
The second power is the one of enabling others to create with you. So if I design the knife, the marketer may tell me that the brand is not visible enough and the ergonomist may tell me that the handle is not comfortable enough. And then other people may think that I am a bad designer because I design a bad knife. And in reality, this is what design thinking in action is about. I'm empowering and enabling marketing, R&D, or the other functions to co-create with me. I can take the knife out and show it to customers, to consumers, not in the formal setting, you know, not just in consumer research. I can just do it in my daily life. You know, maybe I have a meeting for something else with a customer and at the end of the meeting, I show the knife. I'm like, what do you think about this? Or I go to the store in front of the office and I show that thing that I'm designing to people and they get feedback. All of this is what I call the power of co-creation, internal co-creation and then external co-creation. And then finally, we arrive to the power of the shiny object. So when you start to have a product that is well-defined, so you, you have a prototype that looks like the real object or very close to that, and you go in front of people because you need to sell that idea. You need these people to sponsor it or you need to, these people to enable you to take it to market or a variety of other things. It's so important to bring something that people get excited about. In the, in the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, these CEOs or business leaders, they receive requests for funding every single day, all the time. You think you are the only one there and, you know, you propose something cool and they should be all loving what you propose. The reality is that these people have people asking them for money all the time. They need to prioritize that. They need to make choices. And so to go there with something that excites them as human beings, not as business leaders. We all love products that, you know, that are beautiful, that are functional, that are meaningful to us in a way or the other. It's so powerful to create that excitement that is totally irrational. It's something that starts from your guts or in the book, I describe a little bit more scientifically what happened in your brain, but essentially start from a part of your brain that you don't really control rationally. You have that excitement. And at that point, the meeting becomes almost a way to find a rational reason to believe for that excitement to come to life. You love so much the product that you want the product to come to life in your company, with your brand. And now you're going to listen to the people proposing you that idea in a different way. It's just psychologically so powerful. Now, that can create a different kind of problem that I had in the past. The people get too excited about that idea and they want you to take it to market tomorrow. And if you're still in development and you don't have yet all the answers, the shiny object will lead you in a difficult situation because you need, they want you to accelerate too much because of that excitement. But I always consider that a very good problem to have compared to the lack of excitement when you propose something. So that's the power of the shiny object that build essentially confidence in the organization. We're talking about quest for confidence. Also, because imagine you develop a product in a small team, you launch the product in market, and this product is very disruptive, it's very new. For people, even in the market, it takes time often for things that are very disruptive to get used to it, to fall in love with it. I remember when Apple launched, for instance, the Candy Colors Macs many years ago. At the beginning, the reaction was lukewarm, was polarized, people loved it, people hated them. And then at a certain point, somehow in that moment, it became something so iconic, so beautiful. Everybody was talking about this. Everybody wanted it. And so 
it takes time. The same happened within the company. So if you propose something once, and eventually you do it with a rendering or a sketch, and that's it, people at first will be like shocked. You know, they won't be used to that something new, something so disruptive. But if you propose something from the very beginning, at the first sketch, take the piece of paper and show what you have in mind. And people will be, you will react like that. But then you talk about, you know, what is working, what is not. You have all the different functions working on that. You start to take it to the next level. And it is a new prototype. This time, you know, with all the considerations of all the different functions. And then you start to take it out to consumers, to customers. You do it in front of your business leadership. Maybe you will be using events like Milan Design Week or Super Bowl to show things to customers in front of business leadership. So essentially what you're doing progressively, you're building more and more confidence in the organization. First, because they're getting familiar with it. And second, with that new idea. And second, because they are witnessing different functions and even external entities like customers, consumers, people in general out there, building with their ideas, that, that concept. And this is really giving a lot of reassurance to the organization. Actually, that crazy idea, what looked crazy at the beginning, is not that crazy. There are so many people involved that are endorsing it, that are part of it, that are loving it, especially when you start to talk about customers and then users. That's the power of prototyping. Let's pivot just a little bit. Let's talk about unicorns. In the book, you talk about unicorns in the way of how to find them. So you're defining these broad range of skill sets that are needed for people to be transformative within an organization. And to a certain extent, you're coming at it more from a perspective of business leaders trying to find these people to bring them in to build their organizations. I'd love to look at it from the perspective of the creative professional, because I coach and talk to a lot of creative pros. And when people start their career, they start with a T-shaped skill set. So they're very shallow in a lot of things, but they're very deep in design. Then over their career, they start to build a more V-shaped skill set where they add on understanding of business or budgets or production and those marketing, those sorts of things. And so as you talk about these unicorns, how would you counsel creatives who have more of those early T-shaped skill sets? What should they really focus on in building a broader skill set so they could aspire to be that unicorn that people are looking for? I, I love this question. Well, there is one word that somehow synthesize many of the things you need to do. You need to be curious, 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 curious. In the past few years, we are using curiosity as a very important filter to identify the people within our teams that deserve that growth inside the organization. And why? Because curiosity drives you, first of all, to study. And to see life as a never-ending opportunity of learning. And so when I say study, I don't refer just to reading books and learning skills and do through formal education. I refer to seeing an encounter with a person that is different than you as an opportunity to study and learn. And this difference may be driven by the fact that you are a designer and the person in front of you is a marketer or is as a scientist or is an engineer or, and not seeing that as, well, it belongs to a different kind of professional category. I'm not interested on what they think. Actually, I think I know better because I'm a designer and they just, you know, 
I, I come up with an idea, I push the idea, and every time these business leaders don't get it, or the R&D organization is not enabling, you know, that product to come to life, you know, preserving everything I had in mind, and so on and so forth. And instead is trying to look at them as your potential mentor in the world of science, in the world of business, as your teachers, as people you can learn from. They should be your MBA, your PhD. You know, those are the people you can learn so much from. And the same if you are a graphic designer, through curiosity, try to connect with people working in industrial design, in fashion design, in interior, in other disciplines, and learn from them. Experiment. Maybe you find ways to join other teams and eventually still as a graphic designer, if you're a graphic designer, but they let you also play with industrial design. On the side, you are learning the softwares to do something like this. You need some basic technical skills, but that's what curiosity pushes you to do. Curiosity, obviously, is also what pushes you to connect with people that are different from you, not just professionally, but as human beings, you know, the full diversity of the human beings. Curious people love diversity. They see in diversity such an amazing opportunity to learn. They understand that in people different than them, there is the precious gift of knowledge, of things that they don't know and other people know, and not because their perspective is better than yours. You know, there is no one person that eventually by definition knows more than the other in these communities. It's just that my perspective blended with yours, that is a different one, through respectful dialogue, we generate by definition a third new innovative perspective that is the connection of the two. And this is the power of curiosity that drives you to keep growing and learning. Now, going back to my position, for years, I've been thinking about what are the, the best tools to, to grow these people, to help, you know, my teams learning new skills and, you know, to, to help in their education and everything. And we're still doing it. I've, you know, we have all kinds of trainings and courses and possibilities and opportunities. But the truth is, that either you're driven by the sacred flame of curiosity, you really want to learn. And at that point, you're going to learn every day, everywhere, because everything could be an occasion to learn. If you're not driven by that, I can offer you as many tools as you want, but you will never grow anyway. And paradoxically, if you look, you know, I don't have the right percentages, but just to give you that a dimension, in my experience, formal education is 5% of what you're going to be in life, 95 is on you. And today you have so much out there, you know, available to you to learn and grow. The internet is giving us so many opportunities to learn anything we want. So we don't need anything formal eventually, even though obviously we want to have formal education is very, very important because it helps us in so many ways. But at a certain point, we need to understand that it's on us. By the way, already the time of school, especially after school, but already at school, the more curious you are, the more you see that opportunity at school to learn from other peers in your class, from your teachers, from teachers that are not your teachers, but are there in the school. And if you go to them and you're not, you knock their doors, I'm sure they're going to listen to you. I'm sure they're going to answer to you. That's what I did when I was in Polytechnic of Milan. I would connect with all kinds of people outside of my classes and courses. And sometimes I even, to tell you the truth, got in trouble by doing that because maybe I pissed off some of my teachers. 
But I learned so much out of that interaction that I would do it over and over again. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I started the journey in a positive way, finding a job in Philips and everything is because I went out of what the school was giving me. You know, the teachers were assigned to me and everything. And I was fascinated by Philips. I heard them about what they were doing and I found new teachers to do my exam, my physics exam with them out of the traditional path. And by the way, all of that, I always thought it was just the most normal thing in the planet. But I was one of the, I don't know, where three or four students in the entire academic year that did something like this out of the normal path. We found different teachers and everything. So even that, that for me was just normal. I love that and just gonna do that. I realized later that I was already to follow my passion, what I love and my dreams. I was already going out of the traditional pathway and creating some trouble on the way, but in the end, really benefiting of that approach. I love what you said about, you know, the internet now almost making traditional education paths obsolete. And the fact you're talking about, to an extent, your ability to design your own education. And to an extent, what you just said about going outside of the normal path of things was you were designing your own education from the very beginning in designing this outside of the norm project. Just to kind of like wrap things up on a bow, the title and the focus of your book, Human-Centric Innovation, at the end of your book, you segue into and start talking about designing your happiness. Can you talk just a little bit about how you're taking that people-focused, the love-focused aspect of innovation in your work and how you can move that into designing your life? Yeah, look, in the world of human science, it's pretty clear that two arrive to your happiness in life, you need to, to do certain things. The first thing is to focus on yourself, to define yourself and your identity through self-expression in the world we live in, in your community, in society. So essentially, the first step is focus on you and who you are. Indeed, this is the first step we focus on when we're younger. We're trying to define ourselves and that's what we do at school. And then when we start our professional journey, it's all about me, 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 you know, who I am in society, what I'm going to do, what is going to be my job, blah, blah, blah. By the way, this self-identity and self-expression, the job is a big component of it because we spend so much time at work, but it's not the only one and it shouldn't be the only one. If it's the only one, if you lose your job, you're lost because you lose your identity. So it's, this is something super important to remember. The second dimension is the connection you have with others close to you is the love you give, and then you are going to receive love back. You don't give love to receive it back. It needs to be selfless, but you are giving it to people close to you. So by definition, they will give it back to you. So here the happiness comes from the exchange of love with people in your proximity. Could be family, could be friends, coworkers that are really close to you and close community. The third dimension, it usually comes later in life, is the one of transcending yourself, go above and beyond. It's usually the moment in life when you realize that you want to have somehow a purpose for what you're doing. You want to leave a legacy. You want to do something positive beyond your personal interest. It's somehow, once again, connected to your personal interest because essentially you are trying to defeat death by becoming immortal, by creating memories of what you, of the value you build in this world. And those memories could be, you know, from 
building a legacy team in an organization that didn't exist before to do charity work that is impacting humanity, but all the way to the small act of kindness that you can do in your close community and then beyond that super, super close community in the larger part of, of your community that will make you be remembered as a kind person that did good in his or her life. And so these are the three dimensions. There is a personal life component of these dimensions, and there is a professional life component of these. So as we are talking to designers, and that's the title, or creative people, that's the title you have at work. It means find your, your path, understand what makes you unique. You know, in my case, I talk about this in the book, living in the gray area of, you know, the connection between design and business between Italy and America and finding an original job that didn't really exist like this in these companies for myself was part of the journey, you know, of finding my identity in the world. And by the way, for clarity, neither 3M nor PepsiCo asked me to play the role that I ended up playing in those companies. The job description was very, I mean, in 3M, I was, you know, the an industrial design coordinator in the business. In PepsiCo, obviously, it was much broader. It was, you know, hired as the chief design officer of the company. But there was not, the job description was not considering really everything we ended up doing, you know, in the years. But I had that already in mind because that's what I was trying to do in 3M. And so what I'm saying is, have a plan for who you want to be, a vision, a dream. And then go, you know, in that direction. The second dimension, the one of exchange, surround yourself with people that you care about at work. And we're talking about job now. So your teams, you know, in my case, I wanted to have people that were nice human beings, good people. I wanted to be surrounded by that kind of love. I wanted to give love and receive it back. So for anybody listening to us today, think about the work environment where you are right now. Are you surrounded by people that care about you? They love you somehow. If you are not, is that the place where you want to be or you want to move somewhere else? Because I tell you, there are many places out there where people are nice and, and they care. And so that's the other dimension. And if you're building a team, use these filters as important filters for the team. Kindness, optimism, respect is so, so important. It's not a nice say, thing to say in a book and that's it. And then the third dimension, the purpose, well, Thinking about the job, what is the purpose behind what your project that you're running, what you want to do in life? In my case, it was the idea of building an incredible design capability in this organization, something that didn't exist before, and make something that is stable enough to survive my departure from these companies. So that's, you know, this idea of legacy where you don't build something that is all relying on you. You build something with the most amazing talents that can survive no matter if you're there or not. But all of this, even this is an enabler for something bigger. And the something bigger is to create somehow value in the world, in society, with what I'm doing. All this push for sustainability, health and wellness, personalization, emotions in everything we do in connection with products and brands, but also the right emotions and the right culture within companies of any kind. All of this is a purpose that I have in life. I want to push that. And these companies become wonderful platforms to enable me to do something like this. And I'm forever thankful and grateful to these companies because they're letting me do something like this 
that transcend the company itself, even though obviously these companies are letting me do it because they understood that if you have that kind of approach, you are building so much value for the company, for the business as well. Mauro, thank you so much for coming and talk to us today. I always end my interviews with asking my guests one question. And it's a big question. I didn't hip you to the fact that I was going to ask you this before. And that is, do you have a mantra or a manifesto that you try to live your life by? Well, I have, I'm going to tell you, but I have, a, I have this full realization just today in the past few years. I didn't for many years, but I was buried in the way. And it is be kind. Uh, you know, this idea of love, I've been using the, the word love in the business world for many, many years, for 25 years, from the very beginning. And then I realized today that something I was just believing, it was my mantra, it was my manifesto, but it was in an intuitive way. I was that kind of person. I wanted to surround myself with that kind of people. You are one of those people. You are a wonderful, wonderful person, Philip. I'm not saying this because I'm in the podcast with you. I, I have beautiful memories of you. So I wanted that and, and I just did it. And I was lucky in the challenges of building new design functions in corporation from scratch. It was very, very difficult, but the fortune is that you can build your teams as you want. And, and so I always surrounded myself with this kind of people. And just recently I realized that actually this is one of the key competitive advantages of these teams. The care, the kindness, the love that there is for each other is a superpower. And I wrote about this in the book, connecting that to effectiveness, productivity to, you know, real tangible business value. But obviously the reason why I want to do it is an ethical reason. The business value is becoming now a way to spread this message and amplify this message even more because many people will listen to eventually the connection of kindness and productivity more than to the idea that kindness should be something that you want to have in every community, in every organization, in every company, in every situation. Mauro, thanks so much for talking to us. So Mauro Puccini, who's the SVP and Chief Design Officer at PepsiCo and also author of The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People, available on Amazon today. Amazing book. And you heard just a little bit of the incredible value that's in that here today. So thanks a lot for joining us, Mauro. And if people want to find you, where's the best place to get a connection with Mauro? I'm super active in, in LinkedIn and Instagram, Mauro Porcini. That's me. Cool. Thanks a lot, Mauro. Hope to have you back sometime. We will. Thank you. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.